0: Um, As always, I'm grateful to be back sharing the Lord's Word with you today. My family and I um, were away for a week or so uh, to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We had a great time together. We were swimming in the ocean and eating good food and having fun with family and friends while we were down there and enjoying the rain and the sun, both alike. Uh, My wife and I even got to go away on an overnight date without the kids. So it was a good vacation, you know. The last night of our trip, though, we were all sitting around the kitchen table, Janice and I, my two older kids, and my mom was there as well. And somehow the topic of conversation landed on stories of when I got in trouble as a kid. And, and for some reason, my kids love to hear about when I was in trouble and the things that I did that, that got me you know, in trouble when I was a, a little kid myself. And, and there are plenty of stories to share. Probably about 95% of those stories relate to punishments that I deserved when I was a child. I earned my punishments. I earned them. I remember I I one time was outside the movie theaters and waiting for my mom to come out of the bathroom and I punched my brother in the arm and somehow, I'm convinced this was a divine miracle of God, I somehow knocked him out with a punch in the arm. And we spent the afternoon in the ER. And I got punished for that, well deserved. One time I was in the pool, we were outside in the pool, and it was daytime, and there was a bat that was flying down and dipping into the pool. I'm, I'm pro- it was probably rabid, I mean, it was in the daytime, so it shouldn't have been out. And I remember I took a pool noodle, and I whacked the bat into my mother. <laughs> and she went screaming, went in the house, locked us outside, called my father, and I got punished for that, well deserved. I suffered a punishment because I did something wrong. And most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, when we do something wrong, we are rightly punished for it. We suffer a consequence for our sin. But there are times in life when we suffer for other reasons. Sometimes we suffer for no fault of our own. In John chapter 9, the disciples see a blind man, and they they ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? And Jesus, you remember, says, neither. Neither one of them sinned. It's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. In other words, the man is suffering with a physical disease for no fault of his own. So sometimes we suffer because we deserve it. Sometimes we suffer for no fault of our own. And sometimes suffering is paradoxically a direct result of doing good. I suffer because of my good behavior. I don't have any examples of that from my childhood. Maybe you do. (laughs) But today we're going to primarily think about that third kind of suffering. What happens when you do the right thing as a Christian and you're punished for it? You suffer persecution for it, or you face hardship for doing the right thing. Why does that happen, and how do we handle that as a believer? As I reflected on this question this week, and thought about it, especially in connection with the the idea of persecution, being persecuted for doing what is right, I came to the sad realization that many American Christians probably have never had that experience, Many don't know what it means to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Many people live out their Christianity with such mediocrity that there will never be an occasion to suffer for doing what is good. Some are so lukewarm in their faith that uh, that the world cannot even tell that they're set apart for the sake of righteousness. So I preached this morning this message with a surprisingly sober heart. On the one hand, Many of you, unfortunately, don't need this message yet. Instead, you probably need to be asking yourselves, why haven't I ever suffered for the sake of righteousness? Why haven't I ever been persecuted for my faith? Is my faith so hidden that there is no occasion to persecute me? On the other hand, this message hits me hard because I've tasted it. Many people in ministry know the feeling of doing good and and having to face opposition as a direct result of it. We preach in season and out of season. We preach knowing that the time will come when some will not endure sound doctrine, but will turn away their ears from the truth. Preaching the truth has a price tag. We saw this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah when we studied that. Every time one of the, the Jewish leaders did good, they faced opposition. They, they face the opposition from their enemies, they face the opposition even from within their own ranks, from the Jews themselves. The topic we're considering today in 1 Peter does not confine itself to any one period of time in church history. The Jews had to face this, the early church dealt with this, and we ought to face it as well. Let's take a look at Peter's words and consider how they might challenge us and motivate us to draw closer to the Lord in worship. We have a few ushers. We're, we're working our ushers overtime today, passing out communion, greeting you at the door, and also we've got some Bibles for you. If you need a, a Bible, please raise your hand. We're happy to give you one, and this is yours to take home, to be yours if you'd like. But we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Remember, Peter's writing this in the context of Nero's persecution. The Roman Emperor Nero had a bloodlust for Christians. Christians were scattered all throughout the ancient world because they were fleeing for their lives. Peter writes to a church who knows what it means to suffer for sharing the gospel, they suffered just for being Christians. So Peter puts this into perspective for the believers. He says, well, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's kind of a funny question if you think about it in that context because many of them would have answered, well, Nero is here to harm us or the Roman Empire is here to harm us or unbelievers are here to harm us. But I'm not sure that that's exactly what Peter's meaning is here. I think Peter's saying who can ultimately harm you if you're passionate about doing good? In other words, some Christians in Peter's audience would have been killed for their faith. Peter himself would be martyred just a few years after writing this by Nero himself. But is it really harm for a Christian if you're martyred for your faith? I mean, I'm sure martyrdom hurts. God doesn't promise that we won't feel pain if we're burned at the stake, or we won't feel discomfort if we're beheaded or if we're tortured to death by radical unbelievers. Christians feel pain, but they aren't harmed. Not really. Not totally, are they? Jesus once said it like this in Matthew chapter 10. He said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. To mince the words of Braveheart, they can take our lives, but they can't take our souls. The Christian who loses sight of eternity is the Christian scared of bodily harm. Can we truly call it harm if God promises to resurrect our dead bodies and make them glorious again? So Peter starts by putting our fears into perspective. There is no such thing as true, lasting bodily harm for believers, not when it comes to persecution. We ought to have an eternal perspective when it comes to our suffering for the Lord. Well, then Peter goes on in verse 14, and he says this. Look at the first half of verse 14, he says, "'But even if you should suffer "'for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed.'" Notice that little word, if. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. And we've gotta be careful with that word. I don't think Peter's saying that this is never going to happen for believers, or that it's just a remote possibility for most of us. The form of the grammar here in the original Greek instead expresses the sporadic nature of the persecution. Peter doesn't doubt that the reality of Christians being persecuted will happen, He doesn't doubt that we will be persecuted for our faith. He uses a grammatical form here to show that Christians shouldn't necessarily always expect persecution consistently. In other words, persecution is not always an everyday event for most Christians. But it is and ought to be a reality for all Christians at some point. It's hard to name a godly person in Scripture who wasn't persecuted for their faith. You ever read the Psalms of David? That man was persecuted for righteousness' sake. You ever read the book of Acts? The early church, I mean, nearly every single chapter in that book is filled with examples of believers suffering because they shared the gospel with other people. If we see it all over Scripture, we ought to expect to see it in our own experience in our lives too. Now remember, though, we're talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness not suffering for the sake of obnoxiousness, not suffering for the sake of sinfulness. I learned this lesson when I was a freshman in high school. At some point, I had a biology class. I went to a public high school. I wasn't, you know, had the opportunity to go to a Christian high school or anything like that. So I was in a public high school. And like most public high schools, mine taught the theory of evolution. And I was a young Christian at that time, and I was reading a lot of articles by Answers in Genesis, and I was influenced by uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Creation and many other books and writings at that time. And when it came time for us to be studying evolution, I was really put off by it. I was was offended. How could we be teaching this? And yet, here in, in my mind and in the Word of God, it seems that God has created everything in just six days. How could these things be true together? And when it came time for the exam on evolution i was so thoroughly repulsed by the idea and i was so convinced that it was contrary to god's word that i didn't bother studying for it and i got an f and in my young christian mind i thought i was being persecuted for righteousness sake how could this happen to me i mean i'm being persecuted because of what i believe in the bible Now, thankfully, I had wise, godly parents and they sat me down and they explained to me, even if you don't agree with it, it's still helpful to know it because then you might be better equipped to to perhaps converse with someone who does indeed believe in it. They talked to the teacher. The teacher graciously let me take the exam again after I studied. But I learned something about persecution that day. Oftentimes, we bring it on ourselves and we're persecuted not for the sake of righteousness, but for foolishness. Or for sinfulness, or for obnoxiousness. But Peter is talking about legitimate persecution here. Like when we share the gospel and it lands us in jail. Perhaps you've heard of missionaries or pastors who've had this occasion. Like when choosing honesty or integrity at work means that your unethical coworkers get promoted over you. Like when pro life organizations are targeted in attacks because of their biblical stance on life in the womb. That's persecution for righteousness sake. Peter says something radical here. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That means when a missionary shares the gospel and lands herself in jail, she is blessed. When you live a life of integrity at work and it means you get passed over for that promotion, you are blessed. Pro-life organizations that face terroristic attacks because of their biblical stance of life in the womb, they are blessed. That's a radical new perspective, isn't it? But that's the perspective Peter is sharing. Pastor Austin spoke last week on what it means to be blessed. It's not just a synonym for happy. It's not just something that we say when someone sneezes, though I say it too, Pastor. Here in this context, we might even want to translate it as something like privileged, or favored. It's a privilege to suffer for your faith, just like Jesus did. There is eternal blessing in that kind of suffering. I think Peter may even be directly alluding to and reflecting on Jesus's words on the Sermon on the Mount here. Remember his words that opened the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5? He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, And be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now later in chapter 4, Peter is going to go on to write in his epistle here, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. The greater the suffering, the greater the rejoicing, he says. Now think about the converse of that. The less the suffering for persecution the less occasion you have to rejoice in that kind of blessing i said this a few weeks ago but i think it bears repeating some of us will unfortunately never get to experience the privilege of suffering for the sake of righteousness suffering for persecution is something that we can only experience on this side of heaven it doesn't happen in eternity We have only this earthly life to be blessed by identifying Jesus in this way. So Peter, what he does is he reorients his readers' perspectives. Think eternally, he says. Your your bodies can't actually be harmed. What harm is there if you're suffering in this way when resurrection is in view? Think spiritually. Suffering for the sake of righteousness results in special blessing. And he follows this up from a quote from the book of Isaiah. Look at the last half of verse 14. He's quoting from a prophet here. He says, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Peter here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah 8, the king of Judah was panicking. There were the evil Assyrians up north, and they were tag-teaming with the northern part of Israel and threatening to come down into the southern part and attack those in Judah. They wanted to depose the king of Judah from his throne. So he was panicking. But God says to him, don't worry about your enemies. Don't fear them. Don't be intimidated by them. I am with you. And Peter, what he does is he quotes Isaiah there and he applies it to us, to believers. Don't fear them. Don't be troubled by them. Literally, the text reads here, don't fear their fear. I like how the New American Standard translates it in our version that we're reading here. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be afraid of what they want you to be afraid of. I don't know if as you look around in this culture, you feel that sense of panic or not. You feel anxiety. You feel dread because of what's happening in our world. You hear about... Christians losing their jobs because of their biblical stances. We see ungodly, anti-biblical society slowly creeping into culture here. Christians, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not what they fear. The gospel will continue forth until even the ends of the world have heard it. That's the promise that we have in Scripture. Even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. This culture will not win. Christ will. Peter continues to allude to Isaiah in the first half of verse 15 now. He says this, don't fear their intimidation, don't be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And just pause there for a moment. I know we're only halfway through that verse. We'll get through the rest of it. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The word sanctify means to make holy. It's the same root word as the word holy. Make Christ holy in your hearts. Now, the New American Standard doesn't capitalize this, which means they don't recognize this as a direct quote, but I do think this is a continual allusion to Isaiah 8. Let me read for you a few verses from Isaiah 8. You're going to see how this is directly lifted from that passage and brought over to us. Isaiah 8, starting in verse 11, Isaiah says, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, and he instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy, in regard to all the people call conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear, or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. I think Peter's been studying Isaiah. During his troubling time, he's opening the prophet Isaiah and he's studying the words of this prophet. Don't be afraid of the enemies of Christianity, he says. Fear God instead. God is holy. He should be feared. He should be your dread. Fear what happens if you refuse to obey him. Fear what happens if you go throughout your entire life and you stand before God on that judgment day and you have nothing of spiritual value to show him. That's what we should fear, not the intimidation tactics of our culture. Those who fear the Lord have nothing else to fear. Now, why should we think like that? Let's read the rest of verse 15. Let's read the whole of verse 15 now. He says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Maybe you're familiar with this verse. You might have heard this before. This is a, a classic verse that people use to talk about what we call apologetics. You heard that term before? Apologetics, is, it's not apologizing for something, although that's what the word sounds like. The discipline of apologetics is actually about making a defense for your faith. You're defending your faith either through reason or logic or scientific proofs or theological argument. You're defending your faith in some way. Our word apologetics comes from this verse. The Greek word translated make a defense is apologia, apologetics. Now, I don't want to undervalue the role of apologetics in a Christian's life. Uh, It's important, I think, for every Christian to know how to defend your faith. You need to know the gospel and how to defend it. You need to know why we believe Jesus is God and why the Bible teaches that. We need to know how we can believe that miracles can actually happen. We need to know how to defend our faith. You need to be able to reasonably, reasonably, and rationally defend what you believe. So, so apologetics are good and they're helpful. I already mentioned uh, Lee Strobel's book on a case for creation. It was really helpful for me as a young Christian. He's got a number of really good apologetic books, A Case for Christ, A Case for Faith, pretty much A Case for Everything, he writes. Uh, Josh McDowell was also helpful for me. He's got a great book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There are a lot of great apologetic resources out there to help you to grow and defend your faith. But I think what Peter's talking about here is something a bit more precise in context. Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you of what? Well, specifically to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. I think Peter's logic goes a little bit like this. When believers don't fear what unbelievers fear, the unbelievers will take notice and ask you, why do you have such hope? Why aren't you afraid of what we're afraid of? Why aren't you worried about the outcome of this next election? Why aren't you stressing out about the the wars and rumors of wars? Why aren't you worried and stressed about this virus? I'll tell you why not. Because I have a hope that extends beyond this life. I have a hope in a sovereign God, Jesus Christ. I trusted the gospel, which saved me from a far greater problem than the economy or politics or war or disease. That's why I have this hope. This is another radical change in thought and perspective, isn't it? The normal reaction when we go through difficulty in life, the normal reaction to suffering is to perhaps try to flee from it, or maybe to ask God for relief from it, to seek some kind of immediate escape. Well, that's not a bad thing, is to pray for relief. We can do that. But Peter's view of suffering is that it should not cause us fear, it shouldn't worry us, it shouldn't cause us trouble, it doesn't cause us spiritual harm. Instead, With the right perspective, believers turn periods of persecution into opportunities for evangelism. Believers turn periods of persecution into opportunities for evangelism. When you see people in this world freaking out because of the pressures of life, because of anxiety, because of worry, think, how can I share Jesus with them? How can I help them see the shining light of the gospel in their darkness? Peter says, do it with gentleness and reverence. That means we don't want to be obnoxious about our faith. Don't be rude. As a Christian, you have a reason for your hope. You have answers to life that unbelievers just simply don't have. Be gracious, be loving. The person that you're sharing the gospel with, they need their mind and heart changed by God. Remember that you were once in their position. You were once as darkened in your spiritual life as they are. So be gentle. Share the gospel with reverence. A couple months ago, I spoke at JAM, our junior high uh, retreat here, and I told a story about when I was a teenager. First year I got saved, I went away on a retreat with a friend of mine and and we came back so on fire and pumped up for God that we wanted to share Jesus with everybody. And our plan, our actual plan, was the first day we get back to school, we're going to stand up on the lunch table and preach to the whole lunchroom. We're going to preach the gospel to everyone in that lunchroom and they're all going to come to Jesus. It's going to be great. I mean, for real, that was our plan. Now, thankfully, the Lord intervened I got sick that day, and, and our plan kind of fizzled out. But that kind of method of evangelism would most certainly have not been done with gentleness and reverence. That's exactly opposite of what Peter's saying to do here. We need to love the people that we're sharing Jesus with, not shout at them. We need to share with humility, not hot-headedness. That goes for your social media posts, by the way. That goes for the way you talk to your coworkers, the way you talk to your family, the way you talk to your enemies. Turn periods of persecution into opportunities to evangelize. I'm struck by the Apostle Paul in his writing in Philippians. I couldn't help but think about this this week. Philippians chapter 1, Paul wrote these words while sitting in a jail cell because he shared the gospel. And here's what he writes in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. This blows my mind when I think about it. Paul's persecution provided greater opportunity to share the gospel compared to when he was free. He turned this period of persecution into an opportunity to evangelize. And and the believers around him, hearing about how he's sharing his faith in prison, they're even more bold to share their faith too. And the gospel goes out even further. One of the first Christian writers, Tertullian, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians. Paul could have sat there in that jail cell and despaired. Why me, O Lord? Why me? Why are you letting this happen to me? I was sharing the Bible, and this is what happens. He could have spent all his time praying to God for deliverance. Please get me out of this, Lord. But instead, what he does is he uses that persecution to share Jesus even more with other people. What a great example for us. We should be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. Hope that extends beyond this present life beyond these present circumstances, and stretches into an eternity before us. Peter goes on to write another note about how we should defend that hope that we have. Verse 16, how do we do this? He says, well, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Keep a good conscience. Don't do anything that you're going to feel guilty about tomorrow morning. Make sure that you're living your life in such a way that the opponents of Christianity have nothing bad to say about you. I've seen this at work. When people want to bring you down, they will do anything and everything they can to bring you down. They will hang on every word you have ever spoken. They'll they'll dig up words that you've said five, ten years ago and try to twist it and bring it to bear. They'll quote and misquote you. They'll bring up your sin from the past. They'll screenshot your Facebook post from five years ago. And if they can't find any real sin exposed before them, they'll make stuff up. We saw this all over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. When, When the opponents of Christianity want to bring down Christians, they will go through any lengths to get there. We ought to live in such a way that the opponents of Christianity have no occasion against us. Post on your social media in such a way that you are not ashamed of what you have said and don't mind people taking screenshots of it. Speak in such a way that your words can't be twisted or misused. Then your opponents will be put to shame. Now, I don't think this is talking about put to shame on judgment day. I mean, that's a reality too. That's, That's the truth as well. They will be put to shame when the final truth is revealed. When they stand before Jesus and they have to give an account for everything that they have done in life, they will be put to shame. But I think Peter here in this context is talking about the shame that they will feel on this life, or in this life, on this earth. They'll feel that they don't have any dirt on you. They'll realize that, and they will be ashamed because of their behavior. They act ungodly. You maintain your integrity. They will be put to shame. You'll go to sleep with a good conscience. Do the right thing no matter what the consequences. Leave the results to God. Trust in his sovereign work in your life. Why? Why should we behave like this? Why should we trust that God's got this in his hand? Well, last verse in Peter that we'll look at this morning, and I've got to warn you, this last verse here in verse 17 is is quite tough. Peter says this, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for, what, for doing what is wrong. This is a tough statement. It is better for suffering for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Now, on the one hand, I When I suffer for doing wrong, like I gave you those examples of when I was a kid, that's justice. I can accept that I've done something wrong, I'm suffering the consequence of it. It's a direct consequence of my foolish behavior. But when I suffer for doing what is right, that's a lot harder to deal with, isn't it? I've done all these good things, God. Why am I suffering even though I've been faithful to you? Now, the answer to that is, I think, the hardest part of Peter's statement. Notice what he says. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right. Which means that when we suffer for doing good, it is in accordance with the sovereign plan and will of God. It's not a punishment. It's not an arbitrary trial that somehow falls outside of God's will. Even our suffering is part of God's plan for us. Now, believers, this should not surprise us in any way. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Austin pointed us towards the book of Acts. Some of the statements about Jesus' death there in Acts 2 and Acts 4. From Peter's own sermons, he says, God divinely ordained the death of his son. Jesus Christ dying on the cross was part of God's will. Let me me put it like this. If God had a sovereign plan to use the greatest evil this world has ever known, the death of his son, to bring about the greatest good this world has ever known, the offer of the gospel to you and I, how much more can we trust that God has a purpose and a plan for the lesser sufferings that we go through? If God can use the greatest of all sufferings for the greatest of all goods, certainly he can use the lesser sufferings for righteous good as well. So this news that, that even righteous people suffering persecution don't fall outside the realm of God's sovereign will, this news should give us great reassurance. Our trials in life should not surprise us. Persecution, when and if it comes, should not faze us. It's all part of God's plan to get the gospel to the uttermost parts of this world. And if we read scripture rightly, we should realize that persecution will happen to righteous believers. Opponents of Christianity won't bother so much with lukewarm believers, they're not a threat. Satan is very content to keep you in your mediocrity, he likes you lukewarm. But those of us who are living with zeal and passion and living out our righteousness, sharing God's word, we should expect opposition from time to time. This is nothing new. Jesus said it like this in John 15. He says to his disciples, remember the word that I shared with you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Likewise, the Apostle Paul once wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just a few days after he wrote that, he was martyred. He was killed for his faith. He suffered the ultimate persecution for sharing the gospel. But Paul, we know, used his persecution for opportunities. To share that gospel peter did the same thing so did jesus and so should we as i mentioned at the top of my sermon maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking i've never really been persecuted for my faith i would encourage you to inventory your heart and life and ask yourself why that might be we don't need to go and search out persecution it will find us sure enough if we're living out our faith as we ought to but perhaps the reason that some of us haven't experienced this kind of thing is because we haven't been keeping a good conscience, or we haven't been sharing our faith with gentleness and reverence, or we haven't been sharing our faith at all. So let this motivate you to share the gospel, to experience the wonderful privilege and blessing of persecution. Let's take a moment as a church and pray that God would grant us the great privilege of suffering for his name and that he would use that suffering to continue to advance the gospel to the uttermost parts of this world. Let's pray. God, I ask that for those believers that are here that perhaps have never shared their faith one-on-one, maybe they've never really lived out their Christianity as they ought to, that they would be emboldened by the words of Peter to go and share it even today. I pray, Lord, that some of us would have the privilege of tasting persecution. It's a strange thing to pray, Lord, but if it is indeed a blessing, we pray for it. Lord, I ask that you would help us to experience it with godliness, with reverence, not fearing the intimidation of this world, but only fearing you. And Father, I pray that when we as a church go through these periods, when we as a a body of believers face this kind of opposition, that we would stand firm in our faith, that we would be like-minded with Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would use it as an occasion to spread your gospel and to make disciples throughout this whole world. Thank you, Lord, for the perfect example of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the examples of Peter and Paul and others in the early church. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to be an example as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.